0: This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the Society of Hospital Medicine. Members can claim CME and mock credit at www.shmlearningportal.org forward slash curbsiders to claim CME and mock credit.
1: For entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. but more than views, and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted as official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly Cashlight, Memorial Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible. If you're you should always do your own homework and let us know when we're Hey
0: guys, we're back.
2: Hi, how you doing? <laughs> oh, that was horrifying. I know.
0: <laughs> I'm am doing okay. I this is this is one of my my favorite shows that we do because we, we I, for I no like reason. <laughs> I like to think that there's a lot of low value practices out there, things we do for no reason, if you will. And it's always nice to use uh, the show to shed light on some of those things and hopefully get people to change their practice. Paul, can you tell people uh, more or less what we do on this show?
2: Happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge, Uh, plus or minus some shaming about not listening to the first 10 minutes, which I think I'll probably forego uh, for tonight, just because I'm in a good mood after this episode.
0: With us tonight, we do have the great Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Though he's muted for most of the episode due to some mic difficulties, but uh, Justin, I, I kind of like I kind of like the AirPods that you have because it- it's kind of like uh, it reminds me of Howard Stern when he would cut to his producer in the booth. I'm
1: glad I can remind you of uh, Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was a very successful, or is a very successful radio show. You know, this is kind of a radio show we do here. Um. All right. So on the show tonight, uh, Justin, we we talked about a couple a couple topics. Did you want to remind the audience what those were?
2: Absolutely. We had three big topics today. We talked about uh, doing echocardiography or doing an echo for syncope workup in unselected patients. We talked about the uselessness of DocuSate as a medication for constipation on the inpatient um, wards, and then finally talked about sliding scale insulin as monotherapy and um, how it doesn't really do a good job except chase sugars. Um, So the three of those are kind of the big core topics for today of going over through the the things we do for no reason.
0: And I should remind the audience that this episode is co-produced with the Society for Hospital Medicine and the Journal of Hospital Medicine and uh, will be available for CME and mock credit on their website and we would like to thank them very much for uh, bringing us this great content. We have two wonderful speakers. Paul, you're going to tell us about the first speaker now.
2: Sure, happy to. I'm going to tell you about Dr. Tony Brew. Dr. Tony Brew is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a hospitalist and director of internal medicine resident education at the VA Boston healthcare system. His research includes. No value care, also known as things we do for no reason. He is also core faculty at the Harvard Center for Bioethics, where he is a course director and co-course director of a number of classes. He's also, I, I, this he didn't send this along with his bio, but also notorious, or I should say famous for his spectacular tutorials. He's probably one of the best followers on Twitter if you're interested in medical education. And he's at uh, Tony underscore brew for the interested.
0: Also, he's a returning guest. He was on a a prior Hot Cakes episode, I think sometime back in maybe November 2018, something like that.
2: Sure. Peabody Award winning.
0: (laughs) Our second guest is also a returning guest, Dr. Lenny Feldman. He is the founder and program director of the Johns Hopkins Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Urban Health Residency and the Osler Internal Medicine Urban Health Primary Care Track. He graduated from Brown University, received a medical degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He completed his internship and residency in internal medicine And Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina. He's the Editor-in-Chief for the Society of Hospital Medicine, Consultative and Perioperative Medicine Essentials for Hospitalists, and a Deputy Editor for the Journal of Hospital Medicine, where he's the editor of the series Choosing Wisely, Things We Do for No Reason. His research is focused on resident and provider decision-making, and he is a leader in medical education, program development, and high-value care, it's an absolute joy to talk to both of these returning guests, so I can't wait for you all to hear it. Did you guys hear about
1: the guy who took DocuSate? He couldn't give a crap.
2: <laughs> uh, are we I have a feeling at- that's that's a Stuart original. I feel pretty strongly. <laughs> <laughs> that's one he just came up with on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> just came right on out. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Lenny and Tony, we're gonna just we're gonna start with our our stock question. Can you give uh, one liners to describe yourselves? And we'll start with Lenny.
3: Sure. So I'm a 46-year-old med-ped doc, and now a new father uh who used to have hobbies and now I don't.
0: <laughs> oh, you, so, oh, the old so, you is dead and the new you has no hobbies. Yeah, what hobbies
3: so, have you sacrificed? Yeah. There's been a, well, there's been a lot of things that have died in, in the last eight months. Um, so when when I was last on Curbsiders, uh, I was talking about my love for the Defenders and all those Marvel shows on Netflix, and oh, yes. now they're all gone. <laughs> yeah. They've, they've all been canceled. It's going to be replaced uh, which with like worked. Mickey
1: Mouse and Dora the Explorer and whatever else is hip these days.
3: Yeah. And it's perfect because I can't watch them anymore anyway.
0: <laughs> Tony, what about you? <laughs> What's ruining Uh,
4: your life these days? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I do have two young children, but uh, I wouldn't say they're killing my habits or hobbies because I don't know that I had any before I had children other than medicine. Um, But I'm a 41-year-old, New York transplant uh, to New England and uh, husband to uh, an endocrinologist. And as I mentioned, I have two young children. And what I really do now in my spare time uh, is watch Stranger Things. I don't know if you guys are currently watching that, but as someone who was born in uh, in 1978, it's like really allowing me to relive the 1980s in a way that's absolutely fantastic.
1: Yeah. So did you have a t- level 20 paladin? Was that yours? <laughs> uh,
4: is that a reference to uh, Dungeons & Dragons? D&D. Yeah.
1: yeah so that, D&D.
4: That, that I never got into. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel for Mike, though, the character Mike.
1: Yes.
0: All right, so you that, that was that your pick of the week? Because that's that kind of where we're going next. All right. oh,
4: yeah. But Stranger you Things was, a, was your pick of the week? Really? No, Lenny, you said you had nothing that you could do
3: because you <laughs> yeah. had a child. <laughs> Except Stranger well, Things. Yeah, that's the only Netflix show left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's been sneaking in between diaper changes and bottles. He's been uh, sneaking Stranger Things.
4: Absolutely well, I, I watch it with my four-year-old, uh, and we just cover her eyes whenever is necessary. So the whole show? she refuses to go to bed. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> You're really selling the parenting thing to the whole audience that doesn't have kids right now.
4: <laughs> well, Paul's not even on the call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, go
4: ahead, Lenny. Le-
0: yeah, Lenny, sorry. I'm I'm being rude. What is your pick of the week before oh, we no, go to no, Stuart?
3: I, w- I, I was just going to point out that it's clear that Tony is also not a pediatrician, uh, just an internist. Why? Because he's letting his kids stay up? (laughs) And watch Stranger Things at the age of four. Yes, that would be the the correct answer. Uh, So your pick of the week is parenting. (laughs) (laughs) Baby 411 book, something like that. Uh, So my pick of the week, I have gotten into... Uh, listening to the Malcolm Gladwell Revisionist History podcast. The new season is out and he's done a couple on the LSAT where he took the LSAT uh, along with his assistant. And you get to find out if he was able to beat his assistant on the LSAT and what the LSAT actually tests. And then it makes me start thinking about all the tests that we have to take, the board tests (laughs) and the USMLEs and all those sorts of things and what those are actually testing. And uh, just an interesting thing to think about as a med- medical educator.
1: Yeah. As a challenge, you should go back to USMLE Step 1 and see if you can pass it. There's no way. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really not. The questions are just so esoteric.
3: Yeah. Well, and I certainly would have failed the MCATs if I tried to take them right now.
1: Stuart, what's your pick of the week? Oh, yeah. So my, my pick of the week is actually somewhat of a shout out to Dr. Gray, who... Uh, runs a series, a, a medical student series, and a, uh, he has a website called the Medical School Headquarters. He just started a new website called Fine Shadowing. It's a, specifically a website to help connect students and physicians for shadowing opportunities. Um, he's specifically looking for staff physicians to sign up who are interested and in, uh, to have medical students shadow them, specifically in like private practice settings that they wouldn't otherwise have exposure to.
4: Can you say again what it was called?
1: It's called fineshadowing.com.
0: My my pick of the week is going to be a podcast. I've recommended the podcast before, but I'm recommending a specific episode. This is the Knowledge Project podcast by Shane Parrish. Parish, Shane Parish, and uh, he had on a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who uh, he works at. I believe it's NYU, and he's written written some books. And he t- the the discussion was talking about parenting. The use of social media in kids and teenagers, and the epidemic of anxiety and depression, suicide, cutting behaviors—that's going on. He talked about like coddling kids versus free-range parenting. Uh, To me, at this point in life, it was just very interesting. And he he also talked a lot about the kind of the behaviors of social media and how people get attacked on social media for this like call-out culture. I found it really interesting. I think a lot of people, if you hang out on med Twitter or if you have kids, you you would definitely find this interesting, very enlightening. And this guy is an absolute expert, knows all the literature, and was kind of teasing what will be coming out uh, in the future, like what we'll know. So
4: I highly recommend that. Yeah, One of my favorite books I read in the last 10 years is uh, Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. And I think one of your prior guests recommended it as a pick of the week. It's an absolutely phenomenal book.
3: Can I just ask uh, what age will everybody let their child have a smartphone? <laughs>
1: it, oh man
3: jeez
4: between between the two, of you Matt and Stewart, how many kids do you have?
1: I've got five. He's got four. yeah uh,
0: so so what uh, Jonathan Haight was recommending was that he he said basically, don't let them on social media. Uh, didn't really comment on the smartphone. I mean, like if I think I'd be okay if my kids like playing Minecraft and things like that, but I I think keeping them off social media, he was recommending age 16 with, which I imagine is it just uh, would take heroic effort to do. Yes. Yes. But he said that that's where a, a lot of like, they're just not mature enough their brains not developed enough and it just mm-hmm. he thinks it's like just tremendously dangerous to to have young kids especially young women on yeah. on social media at that
1: age if I could keep them away from smartphones until they're 25 that would be best honestly because it does, even when they're 16 it's I, I, I've seen too much
0: let's see if we could bring in Paul Williams uh, and see if uh, his audio is working now
2: hi guys am I here do you hear me you yes. are here hello Paul Fantastic. Glad to be back. Thanks so much for having me.
0: <laughs> Paul, this is you know <laughs> Missed a great episode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like my subconscious son the, the movie. What did I miss?
0: It couldn't be a better timing, Paul, because uh, we'd love a pick of the week you from you before we get into some things we do for no reason.
2: This I mean and, and uh, thanks Picks for waiting for or, me. Isn't that my most no reason? Useful contribution is probably my pick of the week. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with as per usual... um something that was for like the 1% of our audience. I'm going to pick a movie called the wrong guy. It's a 1997 comedy starring Dave Foley. It is absolutely unavailable on any streaming platform. So if you want to see it, you have to buy it. Um, He Dave Foley, you may recall from news radio, he was in the kids in the hall for our our older listeners. um, And is one of the funniest human beings on the planet. And he considers this actually his, his greatest project. And it is one of the best comedies I think I've seen in the past 10 years. It's absurd. There's physical comedy. Dave fully gives a manic performance that I've never seen anything like it. It is just it is spectacular, and basically it's about a guy who gets passed over promotion and in the boardroom is witnessed by many people threatening to murder his boss, <laughs> and then he goes to confront his boss and finds him murdered, and he becomes convinced that he is, of course, accused of the crime, and it doesn't hurt that he leaves the office screaming and holding a bloody knife, and then sort of hilarity ensues from there. So it's a great movie if you're a comedy nerd and have some money to blow to actually buy the thing, because that's the only way you're going to see it, so... That would be the wrong guy, uh, starring Dave Foley.
1: And apparently it's... Uh, I did find it streaming somewhere. Huh. Interesting.
2: How, not how legally. Many, how many <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> oh, I... I, got Because I, it's, cause it's not even... I don't think released in the States. I'm not sure he actually generated enough critical reviews to actually well, get the Rotten if Tomatoes. if it wasn't
1: released in the States, there's actually... It, it wouldn't be illegal to, for it to be on some <laughs> platforms. Okay. So let's, let's 84%. get away from the legal... <laughs> 84% It's for legal good. repercussions of
0: streaming, illegally streaming video. <laughs> Lenny, can you tell us, uh, we're going to talk about things we do for no reason. Can you remind the audience what that is or and, and why why it exists, what we're doing here?
3: Sure. I, I wanted to start off, though, with a thing we do for no reason, uh, which was the last time I was on the show, uh, you guys beeped me about a hundred times. I think I am the most beeped person <laughs> In curbside or history, oh uh, man, I'll have to go back and listen to the episode. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I was beeped a ton.
0: <laughs> did, Even did, more than peace? did we get you it? in trouble?
3: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I think a lot of the residents thought I was cussing all over the place.
0: <laughs> well, it was a kind of a cuss word. He was he was mentioning a very specific EHR, and uh, then uh, <laughs> and then no subsequent... no no no.
3: You, <laughs> well, it was more that you were you were beeping a uh, a famous university.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. Yep. That's true. Yeah. Cash lack. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's so, just say cash lack tonight instead of mentioning said university.
3: <laughs> I, I, I think I got it. I, I think you drove home the point. I'm so sorry, Lenny. This is the first I'm hearing of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the first you're hearing of, though. You're the responsible
3: party.
0: <laughs> I, yeah. I'm 100% responsible. I feel bad. I'm, I'm really sorry.
1: He's got some street cred now, though. Well,
3: I, I needed to get it off my chest. <laughs>
1: Okay, so on to things we do for no reason.
3: Yes, so real things that we do for no reason. So this started in 2012. I started giving talks at the Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting, and it turned into an annual talk, covered about three to four topics each time I did the talk, and then in about 2015... I was able to convince Andy Auerbach, who was the editor at that time of the Journal of Hospital Medicine, that we should start this as a series in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. And so we had an editorial talking about the series in October of 2015 and then have been producing these Things We Do For No Reason articles ever since. And the basic idea is These are, in terms of high-value care, this is still the low-hanging fruit of high-value care. These are uh, issues or topics or diagnostic studies or medications, whatever whatever you want, that have no evidence behind them, don't help our patients whatsoever, and are things that we should really just get rid of for the most part. Uh, so this is not trying to compare this thing. It works well, and this thing may work about as well. And which one costs more? And that that we're not getting into the minutia there. Those gray zones. This is stuff that just doesn't help anybody. That has been handed down from generation to generation, and we just keep doing it. And I think the most important part that hopefully people get out of this is not. The specific things we talk about, although they're interesting, but what hopefully people get out of this is that they become a little skeptical about what they're learning, and they question what they're learning, and they begin to say, you know, maybe some of what I'm being told, it's I'm just being told it because that's what my teacher was told, that's what my attending was told, and so they're just passing it down without having really thought about it. So hopefully we get people to think. We call that ABM, attending-based medicine.
1: Stuart, would you like to read our first case? <laughs> sure. It'd be. Wait, wait. Which one's our first case? Oh, Echo. <clears throat> a 57 year old female presented to the emergency department after a syncopal episode. She had just eaten a wonderful dinner when she slumped over and became unresponsive she regained consciousness 30 seconds later and quickly returned to baseline mental status she denied any chest pain shortness of breath or palpitations her medical history included hypertension and hypothyroidism her medication regimen was unchanged vital signs including orthostatic blood pressures were within normal ranges physical exam chest x-ray cbc chemistry bnp and troponin were all within normal ranges that's it (laughs) <laughs> you've you've been on the show before. Did you want to ask a follow-up
0: question or uh, prompt our
1: guest? So before we move on, and I'm gonna have to excuse myself for one second because my daughter is at the door and has no key to the house. Could we please define syncope?
4: I'd love to. So um, the 2017 ACCHA guideline has a, actually a really nice definition. And so I'll, I'll kind of read it semi-verbatim. Uh, uh, so they say it's a symptom, and I actually kind of like the fact that they, they include the fact that it's a symptom. So it's a symptom that presents with an abrupt, transient, complete loss of consciousness associated with an inability to maintain postural tone with rapid and spontaneous recovery. And what's interesting is they don't include in the definition that it's uh, from cerebral hypoperfusion, though they do comment that that's the presumed mechanism. So it's a slightly different definition than the one that I have typically taught, in that it includes the fact that it's actually a symptom, uh, not uh, in and of itself really a diagnosis, uh, and that the presumed mechanism is cere- cerebral hypoperfusion. That's from the two thousand seventeen ACC/AHA guidelines.
0: Tony, so you've def- you've defined syncope. Now, what is the rationale, like echoes, working in the hospital, it seems like everybody that has syncope gets an echo, and uh, we wouldn't be talking about it if that were the right thing to do. So, but why, why do people think that's the right thing to do? Um,
4: so, so before I answer that question, I just want to be clear, we're, we're talking about, you know, a thing we do for no reason. What we're talking about here is echo for um, unselected patients with syncope, right? So there's clearly going to be patients in whom an echo makes a lot of sense. And just as you said, Matt, I I think what happens, unfortunately, and I see this when I uh, pick up patients in the morning admitted by a night float resident, you know, a a 57 year old like this patient, you know, automatically as part of the plan is echo without really thought to what am I looking for? Right. Um, So there's really two flavors of things that we're looking for with an echo. One is structural heart disease. And I'll give examples of that in a moment. Uh, and the other is risk factors for other causes of syncope. In, in particular there, it's reduced EF, because patients with reduced EF are at risk for VTVF. Um, and I, I, frankly, I, I don't think there are many house staff or many attendings even who are necessarily saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get an echo to look for the, the reduced EF because that might be predisposing to VV, VTVF. I think most are looking for structural heart disease, mm-hmm. things like severe aortic stenosis, uh, hokum, obviously very rarely an atrial myxoma. Uh, and then a few other things, pericardial effusion, uh, severe enough to cause tamponade. Um, uh, there are some cases of pulmonary arterial hypertension that can cause syncope. And then you might even see some, uh, uh, clues to a pulmonary embolism. But frankly, on that list, I think most of the time we're looking for aortic stenosis, Mm -hmm. at, at least in my experience, that's, that's what I'm looking for.
1: So how, how often are we ordering these right now though? So
4: it, as you might imagine, it really depends on the study you look at. It depends on, on the population um, that's included in the cohorts. Uh, it, it's pr- probably, I'll speak from my experience. It seems like ha- about half, and that's not unpublished. That's just firsthand experience. Uh, the studies that were quoted in the article that we're talking about tonight, uh, had ranges anywhere between thirty and ninety percent, so you know huge variety. And again, that kind of gets to the idea that it depends on the cohort you're looking at. Um, some uh, what's interesting is a more recent study from 2018 that kind of looked at all admissions with a diagnosis of syncope, and, and they used the nas- uh, the nationwide inpatient sample database. So it's a huge database. And the rates are actually far lower. It's on the order of 5 to 7% uh, of patients with an a, admitting diagnosis of syncope had an echo. But what's curious is um, I would have expected that number to go down from 2001 to 2014. It's actually gone up from 5% to 6.8%, which, again, I, I kind of felt like people were beginning to clue into the fact that we don't need to do echoes in everybody, but this suggests that that's actually
1: not the case. Why do you think that it is?
4: Uh part of me wonders if the electronic medical record has made it a little bit easier to order an echo. Uh, and the availability of echoes in the hospital setting has probably increased from 2001 to 2014. I, I bet you now you can get one more easily than you could 15, 20 years
2: ago. Well, it seems to me, you know, in terms of, you hate to admit this, but there are certain diagnoses or admitting reasons that, that you see and you just kind of go, oh God, here we go. Um, and I feel like syncope is one of those things. So I feel like the echo represents almost kind of a quiet desperation because it feels like so often you do the million dollar workup and just kind of nothing really comes back localizing. Do you have a sense of how often the echo is sort of actually, well, not even the echo, how how often do you actually find sort of a definitive diagnosis for syncope um, after someone's admitted for it?
4: Yeah. So uh, again, depends on the cohort, depends on the study, but somewhere um, uh, on the order of uh, f- up to maybe 40, even 60% of patients in some cohorts can have no diagnosis found, all right? So it, it depends on how confidently you need to uh, be of the diagnosis uh, in the again like the cohort you're looking at. In terms of how often an echo finds you a diagnosis, um, it actually is probably helpful to take a step back and say how often are these structural causes Or structural lesions, the cause of syncope. And so, if you look at that question, it's probably on the order of 2 to 4 percent of patients. And it's probably less than 1 percent of patients who have a structural cause that's aortic stenosis. Right? So a lot of these other structural causes are things like the pulmonary hypertension, uh, the pericardial effusions, things, of like, things like that. It's actually pretty rare to, to find new aortic stenosis on an echo in a patient who's admitted with syncope, probably on the order of 1% or less. Um, and so when you look at these cohorts, including the ones that are in the, the paper we're talking about tonight, um, three of the studies found a yield of 0%. <laughs> For echo? That feels low. Um, yeah, that's that's a little bit low. Um, and then the other two studies uh, found rates of 2% and 4%. But what we have to remember about these numbers is, again, we're, we're talking about uh, a slightly different cohort, right? So what they are talking about in this paper are the patients who have a normal exam, no cardiac history, particularly things like no uh, coronary artery disease and no heart failure, um, and a normal EKG, right? So we're talking about the unselected syncope patient. The what is you might otherwise deem a low-risk syncope patient. Mm-hmm. There, you're you're just it's exceedingly unlikely that you're going to find a cause. Let's keep going.
0: So I, okay, I, I derailed our thought prog- our thought prog- process there. So so
1: he, he uh, had answered the question about how often is syncope identified as a cause yeah. uh, using echocardiography. And the next question, which was touched on by Dr. Dressler, was the as far as what's the cost to diagnose one structural abnormality given how we are currently utilizing echocardiography. I, I don't know if someone wants to more eloquently ask that question, though.
4: The how if so if it's an exceedingly uh, low yield test and it's not a speci- it's not a particularly cheap test, uh, how much does it cost to actually find a an etiology? So the. Um, in the uh, Journal of Hospital Medicine paper, they did a calculation, and this is based on a cost of an echo of around one to two thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, they determined that it would cost between sixty and one hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars uh, to make one diagnosis yeah. uh, using using echocardiography, and that's. Um, that seems about right. I mean, and I, th- I think the the cost figures. I forget the website they actually used, but I checked it out, and it and it, and it was again. It's not um, a recommended cost. I believe that these are numbers that are uh, for what a patient might be charged uh, for an echocardiography. Because I don't I don't know that it actually costs a thousand to two thousand dollars to perform the echo.
3: These are more charge data. But it's, either way, it's a it's a big number. Tony, I I I just wanted that in that. I don't think that in those studies that we found any patients who had severe aortic stenosis who people didn't think had some sort of valvular problem to begin with. That usually what people were finding was maybe a low EF that they didn't expect, but otherwise they weren't finding the occult severe aortic stenosis that somehow everybody missed on exam.
4: Yeah, so so in one of the studies, probably... um... One of the ones that sort of lays it out a little bit more clearly, um, you know, with the kind of diagnoses they found were things like, uh, again, pericardial effusion, um, pulmonary hypertension, uh, erotic stenosis, but actually all those diagnoses were made in patients who were not low risk. Those were in patients who had an abnormal EKG, an abnormal physical exam, or some uh, historical feature that suggested an echo made sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's really about risk stratifying the patient at the time of admission. Uh, this is, it's kind of makes sense, right? Um, but it's often not done. We say, well, you know, echo is non-invasive. It's just a little ultrasound. Let's just get it on everybody. And the reality is it it's not necessary. And, and there's, a, uh, I don't know of any data and Lenny, I'm not sure if you do about um, uh, length of stay associated with echo, but even though it's a more easily obtained test now, uh, there are probably patients who stay in the hospital an extra day awaiting an echo uh, or are admitted on a Saturday and stay till a Monday awaiting an echo. And so, uh, again, Lenny, I'm not sure if you're aware of length of stay data, but I suspect there there could be a difference based on those sorts of events.
3: So I am not aware of any data uh, to that effect, but I wouldn't be surprised by that either. Certainly, have had a lot of patients who have stayed to get that echo that you said, mm, did they really need that? Exactly. But I also wonder what kind of downstream sort of unnecessary workup
2: happens as a result too. like you, if you get the echo because you're looking for, you know, reaching aortic stenosis or wildly depressed systolic function, and you find end up finding like a, a little ditzel or a doodad or sort of like a mildly depressed systolic function or something that you don't quite know what to do with. And then you're sort of committed to working that up um, ad nauseum, too.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a patient uh, at Cashlack recently who um, was admitted, I don't think he was admitted with a diagnosis of syncope, but nonetheless, he got an echo and he had a borderline EF, no symptoms of heart failure at all. And we were like, what the heck do we do with this? And we were actually kind of flummoxed.
3: I- incidental anomas are found everywhere, right?
4: <laughs> absolutely.
0: Stuart, did you want to did you want to mention anything about carotid massage? I think you had some some info there. <laughs>
1: well, no it, it was it was more of a question of uh as far as if you if a patient presents with uh, a new onset syncope, let's just go through like briefly what your workup would look like.
4: So for uh, a patient with syncope without these risk factors.
1: Exactly. You've got, yeah. you know, normal EKG, uh, history exam is relatively unremarkable. What What does your workup look like?
4: Uh, so, for many of these patients, uh, it ends there. Uh, you know, you're going to get a you know. This patient had a CBC, so they they're not severely anemic. Um, I'll say that the the utility of telemetry in all admitted patients is probably not high. I can maybe count on one hand the number of times telemetry has revealed something, but I do put most of my patients on telemetry who are hospitalized with a diagnosis of syncope. Uh, but this patient, you might observe for 24 hours, and they have a pretty good story for uh, a uh, neurocardiogenic or vasovagal syncope, and then you discharge them. So I'm not sure what the, the four of you guys do routinely, but um, you know certainly head CTs, carotid ultrasounds, uh Tilt table tests. I've never ordered one of those. Um, and you know, Matt asked Stuart about carotid sinus massage. I, I have not done that as a routine modality in, in in these patients.
3: So I probably order pro BNP's more often than I need to on these patients. I, I feel like it's a cheap way of getting the same information that I'm often getting an echocardiogram for, and that's if I'm in any way worried that the patient might have a low EF. That's that's the one other thing I add. The European guidelines are really great. If you haven't looked at the European syncope guidelines, they're out. They were out uh, new in the last about year to two years, and they have some symptoms on there that you can put into low risk versus high risk, and uh, I think are very helpful in trying to put together: is this a low risk patient or not uh, in your head? And one of those is uh, passing out while you're eating.
1: There's actually a – there's also a Canadian risk or Canadian syncope risk score, which is uh, useful as well to determine – you can kind of categorize high, low, um, moderate risk and whether or not you need to admit them or not, but –
4: You know, to Lenny's point about a BNP, I think there's a little bit of emerging data about the use of uh, markers like BNP and troponin as a way to um, be more confident that a patient is low risk and does not need um, uh, echocardiography. So the last year in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, there was a study published that uh, looked at uh, history of congestive heart failure, history of coronary disease, abnormal EKG, and then troponin and BMP, those five things. So, if you, if you lacked those, the probability of a, a adverse event was exceedingly low.
3: I, I do think syncope is interesting because it's one of those diagnoses that if you are not comfortable with uncertainty, you're going to have issues with that diagnosis because so often... As Tony alluded to, we don't actually find a diagnosis, and we need to be comfortable with saying we've ruled out the bad stuff, and it's okay if we don't know exactly why this happened.
0: I'm going to try to recap before we move on to the next topic. Someone comes in with syncope, we're doing a full history and exam, an EKG, we we might do biomarkers, which would be troponins and a, and a BNP, and then the echo— Unless the patient has an abnormal EKG or a significant cardiac history, um, you could probably skip the echo. Any any major things I'm missing, Tony?
4: Sure. So, so has anyone uh, heard the adage that as aortic stenosis gets more severe to you know critical, uh, that a murmur can actually get quieter and go away? Has anyone ever heard that? I've heard that before. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, I had heard that repeatedly. Um, I tried to find evidence to support that. And, and the reason, of course, is if you auscultate someone's heart and you don't hear a murmur, boy, wouldn't it be nice to say I've ruled out aortic stenosis. And the data that I was able to find is a great study from 1991 that you can put in the show notes. Um, basically, no patient with either moderate or severe aortic stenosis lacked a murmur, meaning they all had a murmur. And 70 of 74, or 95% of patients with mild, had a murmur. Um, so if any of your listeners knows of a study uh, or even a case report of a patient with severe or critical AS who did not have a murmur, I would love to see it because... I feel like that is handed down and it is such folklore. Yeah, uh,
0: unless their valve is no longer moving. Uh, it's
4: <laughs> well, well. so I think the, the the kind of patient in whom you might see it is someone who's got like an EF of 10, 15% and simply cannot generate flow across that valve, but that patient ain't presenting in a subtle way. Right, right.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, obviously like the, the peak gets later is the thing that I'd heard. I'd not actually heard of the murmur just kind of vanishing um, that I have a harder time wrapping my head around
4: yeah the the absence of a second heart sound and the late peaking are probably uh, some of the better predictors of severity
0: Paul would you would you mind reading our case uh, our next case for for Lenny?
2: happily are we we're doing a docusate? Yes, yes. Uh, you don't want to have a favorite child, but this one's great. Um, <laughs> this is, so it's this a gift case, to keep on have- giving. Uh, an 80-year-old female, no significant past medical history, she presents with a mechanical fall. Her x-rays are notable for a right hip fracture. She is treated with morphine for analgesia and evaluated by orthopedic surgery for surgical repair. Uh, the hospitalist recognizes that this patient is at high risk for constipation and orders docusate for prevention of constipation.
1: Drops the mic and walks off.
2: <laughs> so we solved the problem. So I, I guess... We've we've all used it. We've all prescribed it. We all know what it is. I guess, Lenny, can you just at least start with a background of how docusate came to be one of the most wildly popular um, laxatives that we have? Or I guess I can't even really call it a laxative, but sort of um stool facilitator.
3: <laughs> yeah, so it's classified actually as a detergent or a surfactant or softening or wetting agent. It has a lot of different names. Uh, basically, the idea is uh, you give them the docusate, and then they're going to absorb water more as the stool goes through the colon, and so that's supposed to soften up the stool, and then it must be easier to come out that way. So, you know, where this came from, why it became so, so popular, I, I don't know if I can give you that answer, because there's just so little data that showed that it worked, then I'm not sure how it got out there. There's got to be some <laughs> story of how this was marketed. Uh, big that, pharma. It, yeah, big, absolutely. But somehow it, it even got to the WHO who said, you know, the World Health Organization who says it's an essential medicine. It's amazing. <laughs> it's got its... its yeah, good its, for them. Yeah, it's written on on one of the JAMA patient pages that we should be taking it. It's everywhere. Oh, wow. Um, And and so it's really prescribed a heck of a lot. Uh, There was a study out of McGill University in uh, Montreal. Docusate, not surprisingly, the most frequently prescribed laxative. Uh, It is 64% of the laxative medication doses that they give there at McGill. Uh, It is about a patient's average about 10 doses of docusate per admission oh. across 17,000 admissions and then 50% of those patients were discharged on docusate they thought it cost them about $60,000 per year uh for the docusate that they were prescribing about a quarter of that from the medication itself and then all the other expenses of labor and administration so it's used a heck of a lot. In Toronto, 15% of all hospitalized patients are prescribed at least one dose of DocuSate. I, can, I would say the same thing is true at my institution. I'm sure that is true at CashLac. It's probably up at 25, 50% at CashLac. Uh, and then one-third in, in this Toronto study, one-third of all new inpatient prescriptions were continued at discharge. So we are starting this medication, and we'll, we can go through the data about whether this works or not. But we are starting this medication in lots of patients and then we are continuing it when we send them home mm. uh, and uh, either as a PRN or, or not.
1: We should like uh, put a uh, say something just ridiculous like DocuSate causes autism. Just walk off.
3: <laughs> can, can I uh, at my own institution which uh, I will uh, not name so that I don't get beat. <laughs> My own institution, it's a hundred and sixty-five thousand tablets a year. A hundred and sixty-five thousand tablets a year of not the, the capsules? Uh, of or capsules of one hundred milligram. Uh and that's so that's about four hundred and fifty a day of DocuSate.
0: So what are the harms of uh giving DocuSate? Well, what's other than the cost? What are the harms and autism? <laughs> Soapy stools. <laughs>
3: So we we've got Stuart's bad science going on uh over there. Uh I wish uh I, I could say it's something as bad as that. Although I, I think in some ways it could be, right? So you start this uh patient who actually is at risk for having constipation on docuSate that is not going to help her, and you expect it to do something, and then you wait. And you wait, and she waits, and she waits, and she does not move her bowels. And finally, day three, day four, she's not feeling very well. And we say, actually, maybe we should give her a medication that really works. So we've given this medication that, granted, doesn't cost very much at our institution. I think it costs three cents per capsule. It's cheap. But it doesn't do anything for the patient. And then we've wasted time uh when we could have been giving the patient a medication that actually works which i think is what we're supposed to be doing <laughs> for for our patients who were worried about having constipation people also say that it has a bad taste it's another medication among the many medications that someone is taking so if they are deciding that they're going to take their docusate uh over their carvedilol that's probably not a good idea and and then of course the nurse is giving this medication twice a day. And that, that's 450 pills at my institution. Uh, so they're giving whatever, 220 of them, uh, 25 of them twice a day. That's time that they're going to the Pixis, getting the medication, going to the patient. This is your docusate. This helps with your constipation. And then to get nothing out of it, uh, th- that doesn't seem to be uh, like a medication we want to be giving.
0: So the the evidence for this this medicine you kind of you kind of teased it. I mean, the the gist that I got from this article was that uh, there were some very low quality studies in either the fifties or the sixties that that said maybe it works, and then more recent and the, but they were very few patients. And then more recently in the past like 20 years, there was one or two studies with more patients that were probably of better quality that really didn't find any benefit from giving DocuSate versus placebo or just kind of in addition to normal bowel regimen. Is that a fair statement or did you have other, is there more nuance to it than that?
3: Not really, but can can I walk you through this? So we're giving 162,000 of these a year at my institution. Here are the number of patients who were in the studies. Right, And there's about seven of them. You ready? Yeah. The first study, 15. The next study, 34. The next study, 46, 12, 15, 170, and 74. Right? Yeah. A medication- Sounded like cardiology is- studies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A medication that is given all the time, yet there is very uh, small numbers. And that First study, that one in 1968 that had 15 mm-hmm. patients that was supposed to be a randomized controlled trial. In the end, they ended up excluding 19 patients because of placebo effect. So, they, <laughs> so placebo they, is better. They said it worked because they excluded 19 patients who were on placebo. And then it started getting out there like wildfire after that. So, I, it, it's hard to <laughs> no explain. Pun <laughs> exactly. I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to include the word "crapload" in all of this, uh, but um, which is the uh, amount of medication we give at our hospital. Uh, but uh, it's just an incredibly few number of patients uh, for a medication that has uh, so infiltrated our system.
0: To to give our audience some practical tips, that w- what should they be using, uh, pharmacologic or non pharmacologic therapy wise.
3: Yeah, that, that's, uh, that is a great question. So, there's actually a, a, a few reviews uh, in the last few years on the subject. Uh, a review in the American Journal of Gastroenterology from 2005. There was a review about consti- constipation in opioid patients. Uh, there's a review from the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons. So, there's actually some good information out there. And... The American Journal of Gastroenterology put grade A for medications like polyethylene glycol uh, and grade B for psyllium and lactulose. So, of course, we know that uh, polyethylene glycol and lactulose fit into that osmotic laxative category, and then uh, the psyllium uh, fits into the bulk or hydrophilic laxative category, Uh, And then we talked about the surfactant or softening or wetting, which is uh, wetting agent, which is docusate. And then, of course, you have the peristolic stimulants, the Senna kind of medications that we we think about. But so the ones that are studied the best, I think, are the ones that we see used really often by GI, particularly to clean out patients because they actually clean out patients and they treat constipation. Uh, And those are those medications uh, like polyethylene glycol. And then you have the the newer kids on the block, which um, uh, I think likely help as well. The the medications for uh, the opioid uh, constipation, uh, but for your run of the mill constipation, I think the medications like polyethylene glycol and ones like that that are over the counter uh, are are great medications for this.
0: One of the one of the articles that I was reading, I can't remember which one, was just making the point that the the newer agents they they work but they haven't they're, but they're more expensive and they haven't necessarily been studied head to head with some of the older agents that we know that they work. So just kind of hanging that out there. So I, I think there's a lot of reason to to use the older like tried and true agents before you get to, not not docusate but the rest of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh there's a there's a nice article from Mayo Clinic proceedings from 2019 and they they pretty much list like uh, in addition to the ones that, that you mentioned, Lenny, like Bisacodyl and Senna as stimulant laxatives are, are other kind of cheaper agents, cheaper options that you can use. Linaclotide costs like $466 per month and the other yeah. agents in that class are around that versus about less than $10 for all the other agents that, that we've mentioned so far.
3: And then you have to, and then, you know, we're talking about hospitalized patients, so you're probably not going to keep them on the Senna or stimulants for very long, but you need to think about how long you want to keep your patient on a stimulant uh, type medication. Uh, I think in general, the osmotic laxatives are probably a safer chronic medication uh, than those uh, medications that are uh, stimulant based. Uh, and then there are all the other non pharmacologic things that we didn't talk about. Uh, People will talk about dietary modifications and mobilization, which we know in the hospital is a pretty tough thing to do when everyone's on a bed alarm, Uh, but to get them up and walking around so that they actually move their bowels. Uh, The studies that have looked at um, what happens when you are left in bed for long periods of time show us that one of the things that happens is you don't go to the bathroom very often. You become constipated. So get them up, walk them around, Uh, People also recommend things like chewing gum and biofeedback. I don't know the data behind those things, Uh, but uh, chewing gum, uh, pretty cheap and reasonable thing to do uh, as long as they're not going to aspirate.
0: I, I think that I think it's just talking about the gastrocolic reflex maybe that's what they're thinking yeah. with the chewing gum because they one of the other things I read was that the, you give give the stimulant laxatives 30 minutes after a meal to try to sync it up with the gastrocolic reflex which I just loved like I don't know if that's true or not but it just sounds cool
4: Well I think there's some data on on gum chewing in the post operative setting to promote um, bowel movements and or passing of gas I don't know that it's used in medical patients, but I, I think I've seen literature in surgical patients. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Lenny, can I ask yes. a, a question? Um, sure. So, so this strikes me as the sort of thing that, um, yes, there's harm in delay of appropriate therapy, but um, I, I wonder if this is something that requires a system-level change. And so I, are you f- aware of any hospitals that have taken it off formulary?
3: I'm trying right now. <laughs> I'm in the midst of that at my <laughs> own institution. But- but then I, what are you going
1: to use for earwax?
3: <laughs> I mean, come on. So it was really interesting that uh, the response I got from my institution, and and hopefully we're going to get them to rethink this and, and we're working on that, was uh, that this is not a first-line medication, but it has a different mechanism of action from the other medication, so we should keep it on the formulary. And my response was... Uh, maybe has a different mechanism of action, but then it doesn't work. So why would we keep it on the formulary? And clearly, we're not using it as a second-line medication. It's 165,000 capsules a year. No one is using it as a second-line medication. It just needs to be taken off. You should just recommend to be clear, your home institution
0: is, and, and just to be clear, your home institution is cash Because I don't want to have to, <laughs> I don't want to
1: bleep you. <laughs> <Again.
3: laughs> yeah, my my home institution of cash lac. They yes. are fighting me on this. Just,
1: <laughs> just tell them that you'll replace it with chewing gum, which has a different mechanism of action as well.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and and biofeedback. All right. So our last
1: patient of the day, we've got a sixty-year-old male with obesity and type two diabetes mellitus presenting to the emergency department with influenza type A. Uh, complicated by pneumonia. Before admission, he had been managing his diabetes with metformin 1000 milligrams twice a day. And on arrival, his blood sugar was a healthy 275 milligrams per deciliter. The admitting provider decided to hold the patient's metformin and replaced it with insulin on a sliding scale. So a couple of questions for you. Number one, can we define hyperglycemia in hospitalized patients so we know what we're dealing with here?
4: Yeah. So, hyperglycemia in the hospital setting is typically uh, greater than 140. Um, and most guidelines recommend that we start an insulin therapy if the blood sugar is consistently over 180. Um, but again, 140 is is often the cutoff you'll see. So, so this patient clearly yeah, meets that uh, criteria.
1: And so... Before we we start dicing away at at, uh, the orders that were placed by this poor provider, can you tell us what sliding scale insulin is? Sure. So um, sliding scale insulin
4: is um, short-acting insulin uh, administered three, usually four times a day, so before each meal and then uh, close to bedtime. And it's uh, administered in reaction to an elevated glucose. And the higher the glucose, the more insulin is administered. And, you know, it, it, this is, we're recording this uh, the second week of July. Um, I suspect just about every new intern, if they've been on an inpatient rotation, has probably ordered some version of this. It's a very, very, very common inpatient order.
1: So they're doing the right thing, right?
4: <laughs> yeah. And And at, so so a correction dose uh, uh, insulin, um, and there's a lot of uncertainty about the terminology, but what we're really talking about, if we're talking about this as a thing we do for a reason, is sliding scale insulin as monotherapy, right? right. So giving uh, a short-acting, short-acting insulin before a meal, uh, if you're also giving bolus, that is recommended by endocrinology and diabetes societies. What we're talking about tonight is monotherapy, short-acting or regular insulin monotherapy.
0: I, I guess the follow-up question is, why is this such a prevalent practice?
4: So... So I think to understand that, uh, it actually helps to understand a little bit of the history as to how we got to where we are. Um, This will be brief, but it actually does require us to go back to the the 1920s. Uh, So in the early 1920s, uh, Banting and Best uh, discovered insulin, gave insulin, changed the world. Uh, And this was regular insulin, right? So when we talk about regular insulin, we're talking about the insulin that was discovered and used uh, back in the 1920s. Um, and it wasn't until the 70s or 80s that capillary blood cl- uh, glucose testing became available. And so what that meant, uh, and, and I'll say doing like a, a serum blood, glu- gl- blood glucose test was extremely labor intensive, right? So for about 50 years, from the 1920s up until the 70s or 80s, we had to use surrogate markers for glycemia. And what we used was the urine. Right. So if you remember the, um, uh, the, the maximal concentration of glucose that can be delivered before you start spilling glucose is 180 milligrams per deciliter. So if a diabetic in the 1940s or 1950s noticed that there was urine, uh, uh, glucose in their urine, that meant their blood sugar was over 180 and they would give some amount of glu, of, uh, insulin. And if you look back to some of the textbooks from the 30s and 40s, Uh, The sliding scales are fascinating because what they would recommend doing is mixing the urine with something called failing solution, which is just copper sulfate, and the urine would change color, right? So a classic sliding scale from Joslin was something like five units for green insulin, 10 units for yellow insulin, and 15 units for orange insulin. Urine, you mean? Urine. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So f- five units for green, five units of insulin for green urine, 10 for yellow urine and 15 units for orange urine. Yeah. Um, and then in the 1980s, I think what happened was as capillary blood glucose uh, testing became available, we're like, well, we've been using sliding scales for fifteen for 50 years. We're just going to keep doing it. And when I was a resident, it was actually continued to be regular insulin sliding scale, but I think most people now use the the more short-acting or quick-onset uh, LISPRO and aspart sliding scales. Uh, so to answer your question, Stuart, I, I think it's largely a product of this kind of thing being grandfathered in, right? There are some things that we've been doing for years that really never met the the, um, the test of evidence-based medicine, like bridging anticoagulation, right? We've just been doing it forever. And so now it's our job to prove that it's unnecessary before we get rid of it.
1: So, so what should we be doing instead?
4: So um, I think to answer that question... It, it, you kind of have to understand, is there any risk of sliding scale insulin? Because I'll tell you what, you know, there's a couple different ways to answer that, too. And I'll, I'll tell you that my answer is going to be slightly different, or one recommendation is going to be slightly different than what some of the guidelines say. But to, to understand um, uh, what we might do differently, we got to understand, well, what is sliding scale insulin actually getting us? It's probably not getting us a reduction in uh, serum glucose because it's reactive, right? We're waiting for glucose to be elevated and then we're giving the the medication. So there's no evidence to to suggest it prevents hyperglycemia. Uh, And there's even some studies suggesting that patients who are on sliding scale monotherapy have more hyperglycemia compared to patients who aren't getting anything at all, Uh, which seems kind of counterintuitive. um, But this this data that I'm alluding to is uh, observational data from 1997. But nonetheless... Um, it certainly doesn't seem as though we're reducing hyperglycemia. Um, and so the, 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 the question is, is there something that we can do that does reduce hyperglycemia? And the, the most um, commonly recommended therapy is basal bolus, right? So that's some long-acting insulin, uh, something like a glargine, and then a short-acting insulin on top of that. And I think most of your listeners have probably done that Um, at some point, but I also suspect that most of your listeners continue to do sliding scale insulin monotherapy in some of their patients. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, Stuart. Are
1: are there any patients for whom monotherapy would be the solution? Uh,
4: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. And I think that the the main patient in whom monotherapy makes some sense is the patient in whom you're particularly worried about hypoglycemia. Because unsurprisingly, uh, the more insulin you give, right, the greater your risk of of hypoglycemia. And not every study that compares sliding scale monotherapy to basal bolus shows increased risk of hypoglycemia with basal bolus, but some certainly do. And when you look at meta-analyses, and there have been a few meta-analyses published in the last few years, there certainly is a trend towards more hypoglycemia if you have a basal uh, backbone. So, you know, if you've got someone who's brittle or who has shown a predisposition to hypoglycemia, that's the patient you want to be careful about.
1: So, I want to ask a question about oral uh, hypoglycemic specifically. So, you had mentioned the um, threshold, the glomerular fil- filtration threshold of 100- 180 milligrams per deciliter of, uh, of glucose. Now, one of the medications that we have today that actually addresses quite nicely and gives its own like sliding scale is SGLT2 inhibitors. Is there any data about utilizing that as an inpatient adjunct or in lieu of insulin therapy? So- yeah, so you definitely can't use the
4: failing solution method uh, of sliding scale if you're on an SGL-2 inhibitor because you're probably <laughs> right. always going to be getting an orange urine and 15 units of insulin. Um, so th- there are some non-insulin therapies that have been uh, tested in the hospitalized setting. So exenatide, uh, uh, saxagliptin, sitagliptin they've been tested. And I-, I don't think they've been shown to be superior, but they've been shown to be similar to basal bolus. Uh, I think there are maybe some studies evaluating the continuation of SGL2 inhibitors on the, in the hospital setting. I'm unaware of any studies that have looked at uh, initiating SGL2 inhibitors as a uh, means of glycemic control in the hospital. I'm not sure if any of the four of you have, have seen anything.
1: There are, uh, I, I'm aware of, of some that are in. Um, design phase right now, looking at specifically heart failure patients with uh, diabetes as an adjunct or as an add-on to uh, uh, traditional diuretic therapy and also for glycemic control during the inpatient setting. Um, and this is based on outpatient data that looks at reduced hospitalization for heart, heart failure patients and better um, volume control.
0: I think underlying the point Stuart's making about oral meds, it, there's been kind of whispers of this on Twitter, and I think there's been some stuff in the literature recently mm-hmm. about, like, we're probably a little bit too, right. too conservative when it comes to using any oral medications for patients who are hospitalized, and the... The 2018 ADA guidelines from Diabetes Care mentioned that, like, once the patient's kind of stable and they're one to two days out from discharge, you c- you should consider restarting their oral medications. Tony, do you have any comments on like the safety of this?
4: Yeah. So, so what I'm gonna say now is um, a personal. Um, opinion, and it's it's somewhat consistent with my practice style. And it's also coming from someone who's married to an endocrinologist, but she's many rooms away, so she can't hear what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, So I I think we hold metformin in the hospital setting way too often. Uh, I mean, I just, you know, if a patient doesn't already have acute kidney injury, uh, I don't see any reason to hold metformin in the hospital, right? Once they have acute kidney injury, they then have to accumulate metformin, and then they have to then get lactic acidosis from that accumulation. Um, so I think it's reasonable to hold it once you got acute kidney injury. In fact, I think you should. But w- just some because somebody has a risk factor for acute kidney injury, you're many steps upstream from lactic acidosis. Lactic acidosis. So I, I'm just I'm not seeing the the um, the aggressive recommendation to hold it. And I'll tell you, if one of our goals is glycemic control. Metformin probably reduces a um, fasting glucose on the order of 30 milligrams per deciliter and a postprandial on the order of 60 milligrams per deciliter. Right, that's a few units of insulin that we're saving this person if we just continue a medication that is a good medication. So again, that's not the recommendation of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists or the American Diabetes Association. Um, I, I do hope that they. Um, begin to 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 you know move the needle in the direction of a, of a more liberal allowance of it in the hospital setting. I seen Stuart nodding. I, I I don't know if you're in agreement,
2: Stuart. No, you said move the needle. Yeah, here's what you said about the pun. I saw this coming a mile away. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Wait, what's the pun with the needle? <laughs> uh, insulin. Oh, the insulin. insulin needle. Insulin. You're moving the needle. Uh, nah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tony, I didn't like say it was me. A good pun. I don't
0: think it yeah. puns either. Now yeah. it's like kind of creeping in uh, because of Stuart, but before this, I I. We did not think in puns.
3: Yeah, you got to needle them up a little bit. Um, so can I can I add in a, a couple things? One, uh, there was a recent uh, study of patients, uh, outpatients with, on metformin that looked at uh, patients' GFR and how they did with metformin in terms of lactic acidosis. And another confirmation that really the patients, the only patients who tend to get in trouble... With lactic acidosis, are patients who have a GFR of less than 30, you probably shouldn't initiate metformin if they're between 30 and 45, Uh, but if they're already on it and fall into the 30 to 45 category, you're probably okay. Uh, And then certainly above 45, uh, even though we have tended not to use metformin, uh, the study really seemed to indicate that uh, patients do pretty darn well uh, in terms of lactic acidosis. And I, I also wanted to add in, we, we just talked about SGL2 inhibitors. The other meds that are coming, that there are probably more data about already in the hospital are the DPP4 inhibitors and the GLP1 agonists. They actually have some relatively good data behind them that they're pretty safe in the hospital and that they help you to reduce the amount of insulin that you're giving patients. And in my book, I, I, I really don't like insulin as a drug uh, if we can reduce the amount of insulin we're giving anybody, we're probably doing a, a good thing overall. The DPP-4 inhibitors, you have to worry about heart failure. You, you probably don't want to give it in the patient who you're treating for a heart failure exacerbation in the hospital. And the GLP-1s, you have to worry a little bit about uh, the GI side effects if you were starting that uh, and whether they're going to start vomiting on you in the middle of the hospital and what that means. Um so so I, there are drugs that are probably coming uh, to your, the hospital near you, the inpatient center near you, uh, as medications that you will be using uh, and not just the insulin in the hospital. And, and then, oh, go ahead, to Stuart. I
4: was going to say, it, it, I, I have found it um, so odd that we take these patients, hospitalize them, and say, you know, that those medications you take as an outpatient, they are so dangerous, we're gonna stop that. <laughs> right. Oh, and by the way, we're discharging you today. Those dangerous medications. Please resume them once you get home. It's 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 so odd to me.
3: Yeah. Well, that then that all feeds into the the notion of contra- contrast induced nephropathy and whether that's a real thing or is yeah. that a thing oh. we believe for no reason. Uh, so we can get to that uh, on a future future episode. episode. And can I just add one more thing? For those of you who do get nervous about hypoglycemia, if you're doing the basal uh, bolus nutritional, there is reasonable data of doing just basal plus correctional and leaving out the nutritional because maybe you're not sure how much your patient is going to eat. Maybe your nurses aren't very good at adjusting the dose if the patient's not eating very much or forgoing the nutritional dose if they don't eat. So there is reasonable data, particularly in both medical and surgical patients. The same folks who did the rabbit two study that got us to the, doing the basal or basal uh, plus nutritional uh, that showed that basal plus correctional uh, is a reasonable uh, regimen.
0: Yeah. The article, the, the article from JHM advocated a, a basal plus, uh, sliding scale insulin or correctional insulin, whatever we're going to call it. And then if patients, maybe if patients had like a more steady diet, then and they needed it, you could add in a, a sort of prandial insulin in addition to the correctional and the basal insulin. Tony, what do you do for the weight based dosing? Like when you are if you are going to start them on a basal regimen?
4: So, so I, I frankly, I just usually start people on 10. I just yeah. give them 10 you know, 10 plus a correction dose. And then if I'm confident that you're eating, you'll get some Prandial as well. And let's get you back on your home medications as soon as we're, um, you know, co- all confident that, you know, it's safe, whatever that means. But I, yeah, frankly, I the weight-based is the recommended way of doing it. But for simplicity's sake, I just go with 10 of I
3: like it. Uh, I'm a weight-based guy. so So I go with generally arrange for the total daily dose of 0.3, 0.3 to 0.5, depending on how insulin resistant I think the patient is and what their renal function is and what their age is. Uh, so certainly if their if their creatinine's getting up there, I'm going much closer to 0.3 if they, if I think this is someone who is really insulin resistant, I'm starting at 0.5, and then I am taking half of that in general as the basal dose, and leaving the other for either nutritional or just leaving it off the table and just doing the basal plus correctional.
0: So, so for our typical 100 kilogram patient in the United States, uh, you'd be giving them anywhere from 30 to 50 units. Uh, total, yep. and they'd be getting anywhere from 15 to 25 units of basal insulin.
3: Absolutely, I like. And the the studies are, uh, have just borne out that that's a very reasonable regimen.
4: Yep. Yeah, and and I, I think that is very reasonable. I, I have a tendency to err on the side of um, uh, trying to avoid hypoglycemia at all costs. So. You know, the if a, if the kind of patient Lenny's describing, I think absolutely if you're if you're very concerned or there's evidence that the patient's gonna be insulin resistant, they're gonna need more insulin, you know, undoubtedly. But they're probably on insulin as an outpatient then. Mm-hmm. Or you'd hope they would be. Dr. Williams, please.
2: No, I'm scared to say what I do because I have endocrinology friends that listen to the show. So I I am gonna say <laughs> weight base for life. That's I'm a big fan of the weight base. That's what we should be doing all the time, and I would never ever just start 10 units because it's a round number and that's what I do every single time if I'm being honest
4: <laughs> i I just told my wife they were talking about hypertensive urgency again so she can't somehow <laughs> critique what I'm saying
0: tony lenny this is this was this was awesome i I really I, I mean i i this felt like a lot of fun I learned a lot by kind of researching reviewing for it yeah this this whole series is awesome you know i i I'm not i was definitely guilty of lots of the things that were that were in this just because i had been taught the wrong thing so i'm so glad that you that you guys are doing this
2: and i just want to add they're not to, not to butter your bread but just so beautifully written too like they're just actually a genuine pleasure to read in addition to being incredibly useful and practical they're just they're beautifully done
4: yeah i mean lenny deserves so much credit because the they're not these um you know five thousand word systematic reviews they're succinct things that you could hand to a resident in rounds and be like look it's only 1500 words you know, you can read it, uh, you know, in the next, uh, you know, over lunch um, and actually learn something. They're, they're really nicely succinct.
3: Yeah. And let me let me mention that the Society of Hospital Medicine Education Committee is working on creating some slide decks for every one of the articles that we've done so far so that you could use them as a teaching tool uh, in the hospital or in the clinic, wherever you think that it is Uh, applicable. Uh, And then the other thing is uh, things we do for no reason, trademark pending.
2: (laughs) Okay. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) He already has a tattoo. (laughs) Now just wait for that sweet journal money to start rolling in.
3: (laughs) Everybody wants it.
0: (laughs) All right, gentlemen, any final asks or plugs that you'd like to leave the audience with?
3: Uh, I I would just... Plug uh, the uh, we've had such great authors uh, who have written these uh, things we do for no reason. We're over 40 of them already. Uh, Obviously, Tony and I put in a significant amount of time editing them, but nothing happens without the authors who put them all together in the first place. We're always looking for new authors. Uh, Justin Burke may be one of those authors uh, uh, in the near future. Uh, I know he has a, an article that's being reviewed right now, so we'll see what, what comes of that. But if you are interested, uh, may I plug my email uh, that you can you can email me? Sure. Yeah, I, it is fine. Uh, LF at JHMI.edu. Uh, we also have a Things We Do For No Reason email, but that's not quite as easy to remember as LF at JHMI.edu. So if you want to write one of these and you have an idea, don't email us saying, uh, we we can figure out an idea together. No, no. Email us with an idea that you have of a thing we do for no reason. And then Tony and I will get back to you as to whether uh, we should keep moving forward with it.
4: Yeah. And um, sort of on, uh, along the same lines in terms of a plug, we really like to hear from uh, trainees. Uh, I think the four of us are so far gone, we don't even recognize uh, the things that we do for no reason anymore. We're just like, hey, this is the way medicine is. Um, I started to think about this when I was a resident, and um, this all derived from the realization that I was doing these things, like ordering folates on every patient with anemia, and I didn't understand why I was doing it. Um, And I think it's the the new interns who are now starting to do these things uh, and the junior residents who I really hope I start to uh, identify some of these things, start asking questions, and then email me and Lenny with proposals because we'd love to help them publish
3: and can I also mention, I have recorded this entire show in my new cowboy boots.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
2: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: That's right, Paul, because we are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact contact (laughs) us at or contact us at thecurbsiders@gmail.com. at gmail.com. A special thanks to our episodes. A special thanks to our producer... Man, I can't do it. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Justin et al. Uh, speaking of which, we just learned that Justin is recently unemployed, so if you have a spot on your team, please let him know. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. Uh, let's
0: just justin is not unemployed justin is very gainfully employed in a very short period here he's just in he's on hiatus yeah come on
1: (laughs) would you like me to re-record that no it's
0: yeah got it it. justin will be can i say justin justin will be starting his first new job out of out of training very shortly he is he is not unemployed they grow up so fast they do So until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Waddo.
1: Burke? He's the Burke man, Burke.
2: I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. (laughs) Flawless. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
1: Good night, Paul. Good night.
2: I've actually, in my own experience, found that um, bilateral carotid massage 100% of the time <laughs> sensitive to Basically, just go right out. It's pretty remarkable. I would.
3: Is that a recommendation? <laughs> <laughs> Evidence based.
2: 100%.